Let's read the word of God together in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, pay special attention to verses 12 and following, as I'll refer to those in the sermon. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we a glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, We shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. We read God's word that far. Let's consider the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism today in Lord's Day 3. Lord's Day 3, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means, but God created man good, and after his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? 
from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence, our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw last time, the explanation for the miseries of the world is the sin of mankind. And our chief misery as the people of God is that we cannot perfectly love the Lord our God who showed such astonishing love toward us in Christ. That's our chief misery. We continue to sin against him day in and day out. The reason that we cannot perfectly love the Lord our God, even now as Christians, the Catechism taught, is that we are prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. That's why we, now as Christians, still cannot perfectly love the Lord our God, because we are prone by nature to hate him. That brings us to the whole concept of our nature, What is our nature? Our nature is our whole being, our body and soul and mind and will, our whole body as we received it from our parents. That's our nature. Our nature is all that we are and all that we have of ourselves as human beings from our parents. It's our nature. And the Catechism teaches us that we are prone by that nature to hate God and to hate our neighbor. We human beings are wicked and perverse. But what explains this wickedness and perversity of our human nature? And that's the question that we face today. That's the question of Lord's Day 3. What explains this depravity of human nature? How can this be that with our whole being, body and soul and heart and mind and will, as we came into this world from our parents, we are so wicked? We did not create ourselves. We cannot really be blamed for the wickedness of our nature, can we? We did not ask to be born into this world, and we did not ask to be so wicked and corrupt. We were conceived and born from our parents. And so does that mean that our parents are to blame for the wickedness and perversity of our nature? But then you can just go back to their parents, because they came from theirs. So are we to blame our grandparents? Are they to blame for the wickedness and the depravity of our nature? But then you see you can just keep going back and back and back into the generations before them and before them and before them and all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And they were created by God. So are we to come to the conclusion then that God created man so wicked and perverse? 
Because after all, if you trace the history of our nature back, it goes all the way back, ultimately, to God. God created man in the beginning. And that's the first question, therefore, of the Catechism. And the question is really this. Is God to blame for our wicked nature? Let's consider the subject this morning, our totally depraved nature. Notice, first of all, the origin of human depravity. In the second place, the extent of this depravity. And finally, the effect of regeneration. The question of the Heidelberg Catechism to us is, did God then create man so wicked and perverse, so prone to sin and evil and hatred. The question is, is God, after all, the real author of sin? Is God, after all, the real and ultimate creator of sinfulness, of wickedness, of perversity? And is God to blame for the sinfulness of human nature? The answer of the Christian throughout all of history has been an adamant and a clear, by no means, God is not to blame. God is not at fault. God is not the author of sin in any sense of the word. God is not responsible for the sinfulness and the wickedness of our nature. That terrible, terrible idea has been considered blasphemy by the Christian church from the very beginning. And it is blasphemy. To say that God made us this way, sinful, wicked, and perverse, he did not. Rather, the Catechism teaches us that God created man good after his own image in true righteousness and holiness to live with him in eternal happiness, to know him rightly and to glorify and praise him forever. Notice three important truths briefly from that answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. Notice in the first place that as Christians we Believe and confess that God made man. God created mankind. God created man in the beginning of this world. In the very beginning, God created our first parents, Adam and Eve. They were real people. Real human beings, in the fullest sense of the word, fully formed, fully created, in body and in soul. They were real people. And God made Adam and Eve, just as Genesis says. He made Adam, our first father, out of the dust of the ground. He formed and shaped his body and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And Adam became a living soul, just as Genesis says. And he put Adam to sleep and took a rib out of his chest. And out of that rib he made Eve, just as it says. And he took her and brought her to Adam. And she became his wife. And they became one flesh, just as the scriptures say. God created man in the beginning. Male and female, he created them, just as the scriptures say. Many, many Christians today, professing Christians, are caving in to the theory of evolutionism. And they are in caving into it, compromising and denying fundamental truths of the scriptures. And this is one of them. 
More and more today it is popular for even conservative Christians to say that Adam and Eve never existed. They were not real people. They are mythical. They are legendary. Or perhaps they were the first fully evolved human beings after a period and process of millions and millions of years in which from the primordial swamp of the early earth, eventually mammals evolved and apes and chimpanzees and finally the cousins, human beings. And that Adam and Eve are the first fully formed and evolved human beings. That's a lie. The Reformed faith and the scriptures teach us that God created man in the beginning, just as the word of God says he did. And if we don't think Genesis 1 and 2 is sufficient, then we turn to the New Testament and we see that our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught that Adam was a real person. And so does the Apostle Paul in the passage that we read, in which he speaks of one man, Adam, by whom sin entered into the world. If you deny that Adam and Eve existed, then you deny original sin. You deny the depravity of the nature of man, and you cut at the heart of the gospel itself. That's first. In the second place, the Catechism teaches, and we confess and believe, that God made man good. And after his own image, and likeness, in true righteousness and holiness. God made Adam and Eve good. They were good. They were so, so good. Perfectly good. Purely good. Morally and ethically good and upright. They were made in God's own image. They were given by God the gifts of righteousness and holiness, so that with the whole of their being, their body and soul and mind and will and strength and all that was in them, they were inclined and prone to love God. They loved Him. They loved Him so much. And they obeyed Him. And they wanted to obey Him. And they wanted to serve Him and glorify Him and praise Him with all of their being. They were good. All of their thoughts and desires and actions were good and pleasing to God. They were made in God's own image and likeness, which means that they were right in the midst of the world, a reflection of the invisible, righteous God. When God looked at them, his creatures, he saw, as it were, in a mirror, a reflection of himself. A beautiful, glorious Reflection and likeness. And God saw Adam and Eve there after he created them and said, they are very good. That in the second place. And in the third place, we believe and we confess that God made man in the beginning for the purpose of of knowing him and living with him in eternal happiness. That is, God created Adam and Eve to dwell with him in his covenant, in the sweet, precious, intimate relationship of his covenant. And he created the Garden of Eden, paradise the first, full of glorious, beautiful trees abounding in precious, delicious, nutritious fruits and beautiful flowers and that peaceful, gurgling stream through the midst of the garden full of precious gemstones and gold as a beautiful house in which to dwell with his son and his daughter in eternal happiness, in his covenant as their God and they as his people to dwell together with God. 
He gave them a blessed and happy life of pure bliss, without any fears, without any sorrows or troubles, not a cloud on the horizon, not a hint of pain or suffering or death anywhere to be seen, a place of perfect happiness and dwelling with God. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? The answer of the scriptures, of the creed, and of the Christian believer is, by no means. It's not God's fault. God created man good. Well then, whence proceeds this depravity of human nature? That's the next question of the Catechism. And by the answer, we see that it proceeds not from God, but from man, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. That's where it comes from. That's where the depravity of human nature comes from. And to be even more specific, it comes from the fall and disobedience of Adam. Although the fall of Eve preceded the fall of Adam, it was the fall of Adam that introduced this depravity of human nature into the stream of the human race. That's what the Apostle teaches us in Romans 5, verse 12, when he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. He does not say, as by one man and one woman. He does not say, as by one woman. He says, as by one man sin entered into the world. It was the man who brought sin into the world. We know the history very well. God placed in the midst of the tree, of the garden, those two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said to Adam and Eve, you may eat the fruit of the tree of life and all the other trees in the garden, but you may not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. But by the instigation of the devil who took on the form of a serpent and spoke to Eve in the midst of the garden, our first mother doubted the word of God. She doubted what God had said. And she believed the lie of the serpent. She believed the lie that God was being dishonest to Adam and Eve. That God was a liar. That God was hiding something from them. That God was withholding something from them in that tree. She believed the lie that God had endowed that tree of the knowledge of good and evil with some kind of power, that if they would eat the fruit of that tree, they would become gods. And doubting the word of God, believing the lie of Satan, she coveted the fruit. She saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. It was not just that she saw that the fruit looked tasty and refreshing and she longed to sink her teeth into it to experience the forbidden pleasure of that fruit, but it was especially that she saw in that fruit some secret hidden power to become a god and to obtain for herself the power to decide for herself what is good and what is evil. And so she took the fruit and she ate 
And she took another fruit and brought it to her husband. And with the same exact wicked desires, Adam, doubting the word of God, believing the lie of the Satan, laying his eyes upon that fruit with covetousness, and with the unholy ambition of becoming a god, bearing on his shoulders the responsibility of the whole human race, he took the fruit and ate. And fell. That's all true. That all happened. How could it happen? How in the world could it happen? That two perfectly good, righteous, holy human beings who loved the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind could do that. How could they do that? It's truly one of the greatest mysteries of all time. People have meditated and reflected on that question for centuries. How could this have happened? Was the devil really so deceptive? Was he so subtle? Genesis says that the serpent was more subtle than every beast of the field. Was he really so clever that he was able to deceive two perfectly upright human beings? He was very, very, very subtle. The temptation that he brought was exceedingly clever and twisted and manipulative. But that's not all. That's not the whole answer. After all, they were perfect. Were they not? They were. But they were not perfect in the highest sense of the word. They were free, were they not? Yes, they were free. They were free to love the Lord their God. They were free to obey him, free to serve him, free to keep all of his commandments, all their lives, but they were also free to sin. God made them that way. God made them free to sin or not to sin, to love God or to hate him. To obey or to disobey. God made them that way. But that was not a defect in his creation. We cannot now work our way into that argument to say that after all, God is responsible for the sin of man. He's not. He created man good, righteous, and holy, but able to sin free to choose to sin. God made him that way. Not a defect, but it was a reality that God created to serve his higher purpose. Because his higher purpose was that man would fall into sin. And that he would reveal the riches of his grace and mercy by sending a Savior, his own Son, to die for us and rescue us from our sin. That would serve the greatest glory of his name. And so the ultimate explanation is indeed the will of God but that does not in any way make God responsible for the sin of man. Man chose to sin. Man is responsible. Man is at fault. Whence proceeds the depravity of this human nature? Not from God, but from man. And that's the doctrine of original sin. But the question remains... Whence proceeds the depravity of my nature? Don't you wonder about that yet? That's Adam. 
Adam sinned. He fell into sin. He became corrupt, perverse, wicked, and depraved. I understand that. But how did I become wicked, perverse, and depraved? Through his sin. The Catechism teaches that without explaining it. It proceeds from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence, our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. The Catechism states that truth. Adam fell into sin. We were born in sin. But how can that be? The Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 5, verses 12 and following. Listen. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. All right. By Adam, sin entered into the world, and he died. But then, he says, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. very profound. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam died, we all died. That's what he's saying. Adam did not merely sin himself personally and with regard to himself personally, but when he sinned, he sinned as a representative head of the whole human race. He is our first father. The first father. As our father, he represented all of us, his children, when he chose to sin. He chose that on behalf of us all. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that in the chapter, verse 17. If by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. He repeats it again and again and again. By one man. One man. We all became sinners. The sin of the one man was imputed to us all. It was reckoned to us all. It was laid to the account of us all. And therefore, we all die. Original sin means first original guilt. You and I have to embrace personally this truth. I sinned in Adam. I did. I did. And I died in Adam. I did. That's why when I was conceived in my mother's womb, in the very moment that I was conceived into the human family as a descendant of Adam, at that very moment, God imputed to me the guilt of Adam. And I died. Why did I die? Because if you're guilty, you die. In the day that you eat, in the day that you sin, in that moment, you die. Death is the punishment of the sin. And what is that punishment of death? It's not just that after we live our life of 60, 70, 80, or 90 years, we die. But it's this, that at the moment I was conceived, I was dead. Along with all the rest of the human race. Conceived and born in sin. Dead. Being spiritually dead means being totally depraved. That's what it means. 
So if you ask, where does this depravity of my nature come from? Why was I born this way? Then you have to say, because I sinned in Adam. That's why I was born this way. I'm guilty. And that's why I'm depraved. It's not God's fault. God didn't create me this way. And that means very practically, too, beloved, that we may not point the finger at our first parents and say, why did you do that? And be angry at them for bringing us down, for crippling us and hindering us, and making us so depraved and wicked. Why? Because... They only did exactly what we would have done. They're our first parents. They represent us all. They exemplify what every human being would do in that situation, including you and me. We all would have eaten the fruit. We all have that wicked desire to be gods and to decide for ourselves what we think is good and evil. So we can't point the finger at them just as very practically when we sin, we don't point the finger at our parents and say, well, it's my parents' fault that I'm doing this sin or my grandparents, or my great-grandparents' fault. Now, it's very true. The actions of our parents and grandparents and the way that they raise us in the home can cripple us and make us very vulnerable to certain sins. That's absolutely true. And that's a very important thing for us to remember as fathers. The way we raise our sons and daughters in the home it's critically important. Nevertheless, if we become ensnared in sins such as drinking or drugs or other idols, we still have to say, it's my sin. How bad is this human nature? What is the extent of it? It's total. It's a total depravity. The Catechism makes that plain. Hence, our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. That's the totality of it, first of all. All of us are in this together. All human beings. You're not better than anybody. I'm not better than anybody. We're all depraved. It's a total depravity. But furthermore, the depravity is total in regard to each of us personally. Each of us is, by nature, totally depraved. Now, that's not a popular doctrine, and it never has been. Already in the 300s, a man named Pelagius was a monk in England who started denying the truth of original sin and total depravity what Paul taught here in Romans. And Pelagius said that there is no such thing as a depraved nature. It's not possible to be sinful by nature because sin is only a matter of the will. Sin is only a matter of bad choices. And therefore, when Adam sinned, he made a bad choice. And when he made that bad choice, he became more prone to make it again and to make other bad choices. But every human being, Pelagius said, is born into this world like a blank slate. He has a free will. He is able to choose good or evil. He's not depraved. Nobody is depraved. 
Everybody is born with a chance. Everybody is born with a clean slate. Everybody is born with the ability of free will to choose good or bad. And if you then ask Pelagius, well, why then is everybody so sinful? Then he would say to you, it's only by imitation. Human beings watch other human beings and they imitate them. That's the only explanation. But that cannot stand the test of Scripture. Oh, it's true that we imitate each other. There's peer pressure, isn't there? Just think of high school students at observing their peers getting drunk on the weekend and doing this and that, and they're pressured into it. They imitate and they follow. We all do that, even as adults. But that's not the whole explanation. Because the scriptures teach in Romans 3 and what we're saying from Psalm 53, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. God looked down from heaven upon the whole human race to see if anybody did good. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none good, no, not one. They're all gone astray. They're all sinful. They're all corrupt. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. That's what God sees when he looks down from heaven. Arminius was a man in the 1500s in the Netherlands, a pastor in the Reformed Church in Amsterdam, who taught a more refined kind of Pelagianism. And the Arminians after him taught that man is depraved, that's true. Man does have a depraved nature, that's true, but... Because of common grace, he has a free will. And by that free will, he is able to choose Christ or reject him. He's able to do that much. He's a sinner. He's, a sinner. he's lost. But he's able to choose Christ when Christ is offered to him. That doesn't stand the test of Scripture either. Because Scripture says, except a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. John 3. And Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. If that's true, then we can't even accept Christ and come to Christ of ourselves. Many within Reformed and Presbyterian churches hold to a a different kind of common grace. And they also believe that after the fall... Man became totally depraved, but as the great Abraham Kuyper taught it in the Netherlands about a hundred or so years ago, God then showered common grace upon mankind so that man did not become a beast, but man is still a man. And because of that common grace, although man is not even able to accept Christ, he can still do some good things. He can do some things that God enjoys and that please God. That too is a kind of a denial of total depravity. The Reformed creeds do not teach common grace. You can find the term once in the Canons of Dort. But that one time where the term appears, it is rejected as a doctrine of the Arminians. Apart from that, it doesn't appear at all in the Reformed creeds. But the Catechism here teaches us that we are so corrupt by nature that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. Indeed we are. That's the Reformed faith. 
Notice, first of all, the Catechism says we are entirely incapable of doing any good by nature. And the idea is not that we are incapable of making good things. There are many sinners, totally depraved sinners, unregenerated sinners, who make good things. They make good airplanes that fly through the sky effectively. They make beautiful music on violins and cellos. They make high-functioning iPhones and and tablets. And those are all good things. They, They function well. And they can serve good purposes. And those are good things that we Christians may use. But the idea of the catechism is that the sinner is incapable of doing anything good in the eyes of God. So when the sinner makes good music, but he doesn't have faith in his heart, he doesn't have a love for God in his heart, and he doesn't do it for the glory of God, then the idea is, it's not good. It's evil. Because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. The Apostle Paul. And Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please him. An unbeliever can't please God. He can make a a wonderful airplane and wonderful music. It doesn't please God. Because he's an unbeliever. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in Christ. He doesn't love God. He loves himself. He loves mankind. He seeks the glory of mankind. And that's it. And that doesn't please God. In the second place, the Catechism teaches that by nature we are so corrupt that we are inclined to all wickedness, incapable of doing any good, inclined to all evil. And again, this does not mean that every single human being is going to commit every possible act of wickedness. There are millions and millions of human beings who never murder another human being, who never rob a bank, who never commit a homosexual act, who never commit suicide. The idea is not that every human being will commit every possible wickedness. But the idea is that we are inclined to all wickedness. All of us are inclined to all wickedness. That means that we have within our nature the inclination and the propensity, the possibility of committing any, any sin imaginable. And now, there too, we can say this. That doesn't mean that we are going to feel ever in our life an inclination to every single sin. We might not actually feel that inclination to homosexual sins, to robbing a bank, to murdering someone. Nevertheless, we are inclined and we do feel that inclination to every kind of sin, don't we? If sin is defined by the Ten Commandments, then each of those Ten Commandments defines a different kind of sin. Do you have any inclination to idols? Any inclination to man-made worship? Any inclination to take God's name in vain, to break the Sabbath day, to dishonor authorities, to kill through angry thoughts and hateful thoughts? Do you have any inclination to sexual sins of any kind? To covetousness that leads to stealing? To lying, judging rashly, gossiping or backbiting and coveting? Indeed, our throat is an open sepulcher and the poison of asps is under our lips. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Our feet are shed, swift to shed blood. Romans 3, 13 through 15. Total depravity. 
Don't fail to notice how the Catechism emphasizes the totality of it. Wholly incapable. Wholly of doing any good. Any good. And inclined to all wickedness. That's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. That's a total depravity. That humbles us. That ought to humble us. Because if we just have that doctrine in our mind, but we don't believe it, then it won't humble us. In fact, it will just do just the opposite. If all we have is that doctrine in our brain, in our mind, as a doctrine, then we'll be proud. Proud of our orthodoxy, probably. But we must take that truth into our heart and recognize, I am evil, born in sin. Do you? Then, people of God, there's good news. Are we this corrupt? Indeed we are. Except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. That's the good news. Regeneration is the mighty, glorious work of the Holy Spirit to quicken our dead souls with the life of the risen Christ and to make us new creatures in Christ. The gospel is that whereas Adam fell and we all fell in Adam, Christ obeyed. That's what the Apostle emphasizes in the passage. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. There's righteousness in Christ. Christ is the last Adam. Christ is the one who represents us, the people of God. And by faith in Christ, we are justified. We are righteous freely and graciously by God. But listen, we can't believe in him of ourselves. Except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God unless my Father draws you. You can't come to me. We are not regenerated because we first believed. We believe because we were first regenerated. Regeneration is the first mighty work of God in the heart and life of a child of God, implanting the new life of the risen Christ deep, deep, deep down in our hearts so that we who were dead became alive in principle. Now, what is the effect of that regeneration? Are we no longer totally depraved? Are we now only partially depraved? Does the catechism mean that we were totally depraved by nature, but now after we are regenerated, we are no longer totally depraved? As you all know, that question has caused much strife. Much painful division 
unnecessarily. Are we still totally depraved by nature? Isn't that what the Catechism is teaching? Why can't I, right now as a Christian, love God perfectly? Because I am prone by nature to hate God. I am. Are we so corrupt? Are we? Indeed, we are. Not were. Are. We are that corrupt by nature. Still. What does that mean? It means that we still have our old man of sin. That's not been taken away yet. And that old man of sin, although it does not sit enthroned upon our heart, Christ does. Yet that old man of sin is constantly meandering about within our soul and in every fiber of our being, our body. The motions of the old man are found throughout our body. The motions of the old man are found in our mind, in our soul. And the old man affects our will so that we are totally depraved in our old man still. But then this is also true. We are not only totally depraved in our old man, we are also regenerated. And that's the gospel. We have a new man in Christ. We have the imperishable seed of regeneration in our hearts. And according to that new man, we can love God by the power of Christ. So what is the effect of regeneration? A lifelong battle between the old and the new man. That's the result of regeneration. The result of glorification, that'll be far greater. The result of regeneration is a lifelong battle. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Galatians 5. Until we die, we will wrestle with that totally corrupt nature. But God gives us hope in the midst of the battle. Regeneration always issues forth in glorification. When we die, Christ will strip away that old man once and for all. He will strip it away and take us into glory in our new man, our true and eternal self, into glory. The hope that God gives us is that whereas Adam and Eve lost paradise the first, he will bring us into paradise eternal to dwell there without sin for all the ages of the ages. And whereas Adam had a certain freedom, he will give us the higher and the better freedom. Free, free at last, to love God perfectly. Free, to never sin again. Free to live with him in that covenant in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to thee for the riches of thy word.
We thank thee especially for sending the Lord Jesus Christ into the world for us corrupt, depraved sinners. We give thanks to thee for that blessed gospel. And we pray, may it be a comfort to us. As we are humbled first, may we be built up in Christ. Christ. 